Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode seven of season two of This Osteopathic Life. And we're here in the midst of what I'd say is the second week of a significant shift in our local environment. As I mentioned last week, we decided to close our office, our practice in neuromusculoskeletal medicine and osteopathic manipulative medicine to routine in-person visits. We've maintained emergency contact and offered telemedicine, which has not been selected by many patients for use. And it's been a challenge for me to process this, to stop and think that we've been rendered non-essential care. You know, that's kind of the first initial gut response to this, that, you know, this work that I've trained to do and that has shown to make a significant difference in patients' lives. And certainly when I've canceled many of my patients, they say, well, you know, what am I going to do without these treatments or the work with you, you know, the routine visits that they are utilizing to minimize their use of chronic medications, to optimize their function, to make them independent in their activities of daily living, to allow them to manage autoimmune conditions more effectively for mental health management, you know, and stress release, recognizing the impact of the their mental state on their physical being and vice versa. But also understanding that at this point we're trying to minimize the amount of exposure and you know the circles of influence, contact, having people in the waiting room at the same time and out on the roads. And many of our patients are in what have been identified as more vulnerable populations for the virus. And I can totally respect the need for this and the purpose of remaining available to patients for consultation and counseling, particularly on good behavior and adhering to recommendations and appropriate use of primary care and urgent care and emergency room services at this time. But as I look and I see many of my colleagues in various medical specialties, I received a text message from my dentist today because I had an appointment pending, I believe in May for myself and for my children and saying on recommendations of the Oregon governor and the ADA, they were closed until June 15th. And I do need to investigate that because that date was new to me. You know, it's the farthest out that I've seen on a closure in a recommendation. And 
you know, I value the experience of going to the dentist and for my children, but can also see where right now there's a pause and our dentists locally have also then donated much of their personal protection equipment to the hospitals saying, you know, if we're closed, how can we be of service in seeing that avenue? And I appreciate and respect and express gratitude to them for doing that. And what does it mean to be essential? And how can we take this moment and the use of that term, that phrase, that word, in this particular context to help reevaluate and recalibrate perhaps our value system? We see essential and non-essential use sometimes with government closures in which workers remain and which are not called into work during various shutdowns, but we haven't seen it, at least not in my recollection, to this degree across the board in all industries, but particularly in medicine and how we're making those decisions of essential versus non-essential and how we're valuing and supporting individuals in both of those arenas because we see the merits of these practices that have been deemed non-essential for a temporary amount of time and it remains to be seen depending on the length of the needed closure how reopening happens you know people are shifting how they practice you know more telemedicine and telephone visits and looking for reimbursement for those and perhaps recognizing how much work happens outside of those in-person patient visits. Even for me, where most of my time is spent in hands-on care, there are still a lot of phone calls and some medications to be refilled and care plans to manage and referrals to ancillary services to be done and orthotics prescriptions. So there's still work to be done beyond just the in-person hands-on care. And most of the time, it's not reimbursed. You know, it's still my time, you know, on the phone is still counseling patients and we're working on that, but the level of reimbursement is so significantly less. It's always advised, bring your patients in for that. And there are merits, certainly, to seeing people, laying eyes on people, making that connection and contact. But also, if it can be handled via the phone, why is that time with the physician devalued? You know, if they're themselves speaking with the patient, managing care, perhaps saving things like a car trip and gasoline and time for the patient, time off work. If a patient has to reschedule their hours to match the doctor's office hours, a more significant amount of copay, and then maybe saving a patient from omitting an appointment that they need that could be taken care of on the phone so that they don't just skip it and don't have any contact with a physician or other healthcare provider. But there's minimal reimbursement for that. Time is not valued necessarily for time. You know, the metrics are a bit skewed. So even if that was a totally valuable visit, for example, I spoke with a patient who had a tough weekend and a flare of some symptoms and I was able to triage that and speak to him, you know, and ask meaningful questions. And he was a reliable historian and 
we made some adjustments in his plan and the agreement was to follow up. He had understanding of when to call sooner and what things might require urgent care evaluation or emergent. And I was able to follow up with him and he was improved. And he followed my recommendations. He was clear on what was going to push him toward needing more urgent evaluation, be it with me or otherwise. And we were able to manage that. And I'll submit a bill for it. And the proposed reimbursement is maybe 10% of what it would have been for an office visit. But all that considered took a decent amount of time. So perhaps this is a reflection point for physicians to make known, you know, the value of the time spent face-to-face telemedicine, you know, face-to-face telephone care, answering messages, responding to care plans, answering faxes and paperwork, all these things that we've discussed as, you know, the administrative burden of medicine and how to value it and make it known that the use of time is meaningful and valuable and reimbursable because at the end of the day, physicians still need to make a living. And if we're going to look at what's appropriate reimbursement and valuing of time, perhaps this is a big reflection point for us. I hope it doesn't demean or diminish the in-person care But I think it's an opportunity to see a shift in how things can be handled and managed in ways that are potentially more convenient, more reliable for patients and physicians, and optimizing the use of those in-person appointments more effectively for things that do need the hands-on care and assessment and procedural components, and still compensating for those appropriately, but allowing for a broader spectrum of what is meaningful work and valuable work. Thinking about essential is absolutely necessary and extremely important. And in times like these, in crises, in a global pandemic that we've never seen you know, in this generation, and seeing how those services and the individuals directly responsible for them are valued and prioritized and protected and supported. And we're seeing a huge lack of that right now, particularly with the absence of personal protection equipment and the shift in recommendations. You know, rather than ramping up the supply to meet the recommendations, the bar is lowered to match whatever's in the closet right now. And that's not okay. You know, and that's not the system that we purport to have here in the United States. We want to be cutting edge and top-notch, and we certainly have fancy buildings and multi-million dollar pieces of equipment, but right now, the thing that would be most useful to us, masks and face shields and ideally bio suits, we don't. And those aren't necessarily state-of-the-art. You know, they're relatively simple implements, but anticipating them and preparing them in advance or preparing them quickly when we realize the numbers aren't favorable and we can't meet the recommended standard is a failure. And from what I've seen and what I've heard and in the groups in which I'm involved, 
it is the frontline workers who are already exhausting themselves through the care of patients in relatively dangerous circumstances calling for them and making it happen to get their own protection in place. And we demonstrate the devaluing of these essential workers by not supporting them, by not rising to the occasion and meeting the need. And hindsight being 2020, as it is, as it were, not being ready in advance. You're not thinking ahead and saying, what is it that we need to optimize the function of this system? And the number one thing is maintaining a sufficient, proficient, successful, stable, sustainable workforce at all levels. You know, physicians and nurses and physician assistants and nurse practitioners and pharmacists and respiratory therapists who are going to help run ventilators that are going to be needed. And we need all those pieces in place. We need them to be honored and respected and supported and heard. And we need to recognize that the people on the front lines every day have a good idea about what is a successful way to care for patients and create systems and protocols that are going to make the ongoing provision of that care, particularly in challenging circumstances, more effective. I saw a great meme, we can use that as a resource, about the education system, you know, and everyone's had to kind of reinvent the wheel at this point in many industries and you know, food service has gone immediately to takeout and online ordering and, you know, no cash handled person to person and the music industry, you know, when we can't gather in venues has gone to online streaming and the education system in particular has had to entirely, you know, reinvent the means of delivery overnight, essentially. You know, we've gone from in-person delivery of information and interaction and peer-to-peer to largely online delivery again. And there are some places this has been happening, right? We've had branch campuses for medical schools and they've been only streaming classes. You know, some places never have the professor live on site. So we can look to where it's worked well, but in many places there's no template and it's the teachers getting together, recognizing what they need to be able to reach their students, utilizing folks who are educated and experienced in IT and with various platforms and you know, discussing and deliberating, saying here's how we need to deliver it, and then getting the feedback from folks who understand how the technology works, um, what would be the best platform for them to use, collaborating, moving forward together. I'm not in education. I have friends who are, siblings who are, and I don't hear that it's a non-actively teaching administrator creating these systems. It is a collaborative effort with the people who are delivering the education directly involved, being heard and being encouraged to help implement these systems. And they deserve all the credit in the world for doing that, you know, for rising to the occasion, for the preservation of some sense of normalcy for the children who have been taken out of their routine school system abruptly. 
And we'll see as we return back from spring break in many parts of the country how that goes. But I can respect fully that the responsibility and elements of the power were given to the people on the front lines in that system. It does not seem, again, from my both peripheral as a private practice physician at the moment, but also from interactions and conversations I'm having with colleagues in health systems that the same method is being used in healthcare. And this has been much of the struggle throughout is that folks in administration, and this is a generalization, are not directly involved in in-person patient care delivery. And so there is a void. There is you know, a gap, a chasm, if you will, on what needs to be done, what's effective, and what these mandates and requirements and expectations are. And what gets lost? You know, what doesn't make it across that void? What can't get from one cliff edge to the next is the health in the patient. And that's what we're missing here. And that's what's being exposed and highlighted is that when we lose sight and turn a deaf ear to those who are on the front lines, delivering care, there for the health of the patient, and instead are blinded and diverted and distracted by bottom lines and perhaps the allure of extreme innovation and being the first to deliver this new type of care, but miss out on the baseline and the general health and the greater good, we have lost our way. And that gap grows ever wider. And it's less and less likely that enough people or any people are going to be able to make that leap. And you know that's what's being exposed right now. Thinking about essential as pertaining to or constituting the essence of a thing. And I've seen written a number of times when we're talking about the essential piece and who remains and who keeps going in and who stays home, you know, the value of those who are continuing to go in and calling them valuable, but perhaps not demonstrating their value, be that monetary, which has its place, but I think more so on the value and the importance and the merit of their opinion and their voice and their input and disregarding it. So it seems very challenging to, on one hand, say you're the most valuable person, you must keep coming in, and in the next breath say, but if you disagree with the mandates and the way we're doing things, we don't want to hear from you. Keep delivering your care. Please stay quiet. And that's very challenging, particularly if you're delivering that care and you disagree with the mandates for your own safety or for the optimal care of patients, which is ultimately what we're all here to do in healthcare professions. And so as I looked at Essential and sat with my own experience of 
being in the non-essential category and looking at how I can be of use to those that remain essential and what needs to be done to protect and preserve and promote the essential portion. I also delved into the idea of essentialism, which is a book that I read last year, maybe a year ago now, and talked about briefly in early season one podcasts. And it's it's a mindset, it's an idea, it's a way of being. And I'm going to read you some quotes about it. It's a book by Greg McCowan, and I can put a link to it in the show notes. But essentialism, essentialism is a belief that things have a set of characteristics which make them what they are, and that the task of science and philosophy is their discovery and expression. The doctrine that essence is prior to existence. And there are lots of interpretations and ways you can kind of spin this and look at it. And when I first read the book, you know, it's talking about how we do things. And this is from the author himself. The way of the essentialist isn't about getting more done in less time. It's not about getting less done. It's, only, it's about getting only the right things done. It's about challenging the core assumption of we can have it all and I have to do everything and replacing it with the pursuit of the right thing in the right way at the right time. It's about regaining control of our own choices about where to spend our time and energies instead of giving others implicit permission to choose for us. And it's so interesting to me, you know, I read this book with the purpose of trying to get focused. You know, I was working in a new clinic and we were kind of scattered in our vision and mission and deliverables. And so we were reading it with that in mind and kind of getting down to what the true core values were and how to proceed. And it still has a place there. And it's still, for me, you know, I, I often find myself in multiple avenues, you know, gym, clinic, fellowship, different pieces. And, you know, how do I hone myself in and get clear on what's a priority? But reading this paragraph today, in light of what we just talked about here with essential and essential healthcare workers and the healthcare system and the respect and prioritization and valuing of the frontline healthcare workforce, I hear it so differently. And replacing it with the pursuit of the right thing in the right way at the right time. And I think this is a big part of the struggle of looking at physician burnout or moral injury, however you like to consider those. But the struggles that so many physicians have is the inability to do the right thing in the right way at the right time because of so many rules and regulations that just don't make sense or match with what they see as the appropriate care for their patient and the appropriate means of delivering it to the patient in a way that is time and cost effective for everyone, but allows for the human value to still be at the core of what's happening. And I think we're seeing that right now. You know, the time is now. We need to act urgently and we need to do the right thing, which is caring for patients and isolating folks who have tested positive for COVID away from others, 
and generating enough supplies so that we can accurately and appropriately deliver care to those who are affected. And we can't. We don't have the capability. We don't have the power to demand you know, what's necessary in this time. And the following sentence, it's about regaining control of our own choices about where to spend our time and energies instead of giving others implicit permission to choose for us. And this is where I see so many of my colleagues, even before this pandemic, saying, you know, going into private practice and leaving employee groups at times or leaving medicine entirely, you know, just saying, like, I can't be held accountable and responsible for all of these expectations without any power over how I do this and when I do this, how long I take, you know, what's appropriate in the clinical decision-making autonomy was less and less and less. And many now are saying enough is enough, you know, it's beyond enough. And particularly in this time when there are going to be many tough decisions to be made and even more exhaustion than is typical for many of our colleagues that we can no longer be held to these standards that have been generated without thought to the impact on the quality of life and the experience and the health of both the patients and the professionals. And so as I consider essential and essentialism through an entirely different lens now, which will be the case. You know, there will be a before COVID and after now and how we approach things and how we view things. Many, I think, for the better, perhaps some for the exposure of what was the worst and what needs to be improved and what we simply will no longer tolerate because it's not okay and it is not for the health of all things. And one last little piece I'll bring up today you know, is the importance of kind of control of self and response. And I bring that up with my kids very frequently. What are we in charge of? Attitude and effort, you know, even as all these circumstances around us keep changing, how can we address those in ourselves? And I'm still totally a work in progress there. You know, I stir and stew in, oh, but if this, you know, if only we were here or this had been my work, it would have been so much easier or different. And it's easy to say, not necessarily totally accurate. And a good lesson in controlling those things for myself. And in one ironic moment this past week, you know, I'll admit I was feeling a little kind of forlorn, as I mentioned, not really recognizing the pattern of my life, as many of us aren't right now. And so I got all bolstered up one day and I thought, you know, I'm just going to be grateful for what I do have and you know, I'm starting this life coach school certification process this week. And before I wasn't sure where I fit in the time for it. Now I have all this time, right? So I can fully embrace it and thank goodness for technology and my computer. And I can use this to fully engage. And I kid you not, I opened it in that moment after saying this gratitude and the screen 
was these weird vertical stripes and my not that old laptop was like done you know and thankfully it was not the bulk of the computer the brain of the computer um that was still maintained but it did need a whole new screen and so I had to send that away and it was able to be replaced and brought back and so today I'm back and I said okay that was a couple days and it's all good and my call started today and I went to do some of the pre-work and some communication and my letter T was not working on the computer and it would take you know, 10 tries of hitting it for a T to show up on the screen and I'm a proficient typist you know I spent much of my teen years practicing typing it was fun for me I typed quickly and efficiently and accurately and so this felt like the, a personal attack, you know, it was a T. There's a lot of T's that we use in our words. And it just, you know, bummed me out, but also made me laugh because of course, right? Like nothing's gonna run smoothly. And this continued lesson in patience and overcoming a very minor thing, right? Yes, there are a lot of T's in words, but having to slow down or type a couple extra times is certainly not the end of the world and certainly not relative and comparative to what others are going through at this time. But maybe stop to say, you know, I have to just control my response to this. And it brought me to this book, LMNOP, which is a play on LMNOP, the letters. And they lose access to the letters. It's a quick read. I highly recommend it if you can access it. And I won't get into the details of it now, but there are some interesting storylines that we could look at in different ways right now as we're being given a number of restrictions and how are we handling that and what should we comply with? What should we speak up against? And that can be really challenging when we want to do the right thing and are getting mixed messages about what the right thing might be. And so I want to encourage all of you to consider the greatest good and understand that right now the idea of flattening the curve is not to end the spread of COVID. You know, we've gone past that point, but we're trying to slow the rate to buy ourselves time to allow those who are on the front lines to get appropriate equipment to serve the patients who will be affected and hopefully a more manageable rate so as not to overwhelm the healthcare system. And remembering that that could be me or you or our family members, but regardless of that, it is a someone, it is a fellow human involved and impacted and it's someone's family and it's someone's friend. And our job is to do what's best to preserve the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And I recognize all of the challenges. I'm there with you with financial changes, you know, with the closure of my two businesses and you know, three children and what they're going through in these transitions and seeing all the small businesses in my community impacted and finding ways to be effective. So I encourage you to reach out not physically, but virtually, 
do what you can where you are with what you have and consider the essential and the practice of essentialism. Doing the right thing the right way at the right time and taking back and stepping into your power in order to be the one making those choices for yourself and preserving the best health of all things. Thank you for your time and attention. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey with This Osteopathic Life. Thank you for listening.